Welcome to the Barry Sachs Show. Thanks for joining me on the Barry Sachs Show. I'm Barry Cockroft, and I'll be hosting this podcast with guest saxophonists from around the world. We will be exploring the stories behind these great musicians with telling insights into how they got started and the ongoing development of their careers. Thanks for being here on this adventure, and please subscribe for a new episode each week. The details of each episode, including a transcript, the show notes, and any links, can be found at barrysax.com. Deborah Richtmeyer, an internationally renowned saxophonist and pedagogue, has been Professor of Saxophone at the University of Illinois since 1991 and has performed as a soloist and clinician in North America, Europe, Slovakia and the Czech Republic, Thailand and China. She's performed or recorded as a concerto soloist with numerous bands and orchestras, including the Dallas Symphony Orchestra, the Slovak Radio Orchestra, the Scottish Chamber Orchestra and the United States Navy Band. She was principal saxophonist with the Dallas Symphony Orchestra from 81 to 91 and with the St. Louis Symphony from 92 to 2002. She is past president and honorary life member of the North American Saxophone Alliance. Deborah has premiered commissioned works at eight World Saxophone Congresses and four North American Saxophone Alliance Conferences. In 1997 in Valencia, Spain, she became the first woman to be invited to perform a concerto with orchestra at a World Saxophone Congress. In 2009 in Bangkok, Thailand, she became the first woman to be invited to give a masterclass at a World Saxophone Congress. Prior to her appointment at the University of Illinois, Professor Richtmeyer was a saxophone professor at the University of North Texas and an instructor at Lawrence Conservatory. She received her degrees from Northwestern University, where she was a teaching assistant and student of Dr. Frederick Hemke. Richtmeyer's students and former students are leaders in the next generation of classical saxophonists and teachers. Please welcome my guest today, saxophone soloist, professor and author, American saxophonist, Deborah Richtmeyer. Thanks for joining me, Deborah, for this conversation tonight. Well, it's my pleasure. Uh, thanks for having me. We've been talking about this for a little while, trying to uh, sync up. And I know the last time I saw you was at the World Saxophone Congress in Zagreb. Mm-hmm. And we passed in passing, you know, along with the thousands of other people. So that was always good to see you. Right. It's great to see you too. A great place to start, of course, is how did you get started with the saxophone? Well, um, in my family, my parents were both musicians, and my dad was the director of bands at Northern Michigan University, and my mother taught junior high band. So us kids were all involved with musical instruments, and we all started piano in kindergarten with my mom teaching us. And we got an instrument to choose in fourth grade, and my older sister played clarinet, so um, that was out, And but I wanted to play flute. So my dad brought home a flute, but I was quite small, and uh, my fingers didn't really reach the keys. So he said, well, let me come up with something else. And then he uh, came home, uh, I don't know, I don't remember how much later, not much later, with a curved soprano saxophone. And it fit me perfectly, and uh, that was the start. I played soprano saxophone curved for two years, and then I switched to alto in sixth grade. Did you find starting out with a smaller instrument, you know, convenient? Well, for me, it was perfect size for me, and I didn't really know any different. And uh, it was a little bit of a, a, 
an adjustment when I went to alto. Um, I would crack the G every time I tried to play because my voicing wasn't quite right for it. But I do think later on in life, um, it explains why I have such an affinity and love for soprano saxophone. Yeah. I think once you get hooked on soprano, it's, it's hard to give up. Yeah, that's my favorite. So I haven't actually met many people that have started on soprano sax. Mm-hmm. And do you see that as something that's happening more often as people begin to learn at a younger age? I, well, actually, I don't know of anybody else. Um, every time I tell people I started on a curved soprano, they just look at me like, holy cow. Um, <laughs> and for me, it was perfect. It worked. And um, ironically, uh, when the next year when I was in fifth grade, uh, Fred Hemke came and soloed with my father's wind ensemble and playing the Creston Concerto. And as you can imagine, it made a huge impression on me and getting to meet him and his personality. And so the next year I wanted to switch to alto. And so I think that had a little influence on me there. Was that the first time you'd really heard sort of concert saxophone? Yeah, it really was. Um, and shortly after, um, I, my dad bought me Donald Sinta's recording, The American Saxophone, and that was a big influence on me as well. And uh, so, yeah, I, but Fred Hemke, first first person that I heard that was really um, a professional, and it was wonderful. There's a, a nice connection that he was the first person you heard, but then you were able to go and study with him later on. Absolutely. That must have been um, a weird sort of Unless he was just fixated in your mind and you had to study with him, but that's a very unusual connection. Well, kind of a little bit of that did happen. When I uh, heard him play, I thought, well, wouldn't it be fun to study with him someday? So when I was a junior in high school, I asked my parents if I could go to the summer camp for high school kids at Northwestern. And they let me go, and it was a three-week camp. And I got to have lessons with Dr. Hemke, and I played in the band under John Painter, and I got to play the Ebert Concertino, the first movement with Hemke's uh, pianist, Milton Granger, who he did his recordings with. And that was a fabulous experience. And at the end of the camp, my parents came to pick me up. And of course, my dad, the band director there, was thinking I would be coming there f- for college. And uh, Fred had other ideas. He, he had my parents in his office for a very long time. <laughs> and apparently told him I needed to come to Northwestern, and I never applied anywhere else, and that was the end of that. <laughs> that's, uh, that's quite a remarkable story because often I've, I've heard many times people say when they were starting out they might have been listening to some Spirogyra or some, some more soft jazz or something pop, something that you know was more music of the day. It's unusual to hear someone, especially that young, to be showing an interest in classical saxophone. So is that the style you were starting in? Well, I think it's because of my parents. I mean, my father being a director of a wind ensemble and the trumpet teacher and the, and the French horn teacher, he, uh, he had people like Rafael Mendez to our house when they would solo, he would solo and he would play recordings, uh, Rite of Spring. I was doing puppet shows to that music when I was in third grade. And I was conducting his scores when I was in fourth grade, listening to his music. So I just grew up with a very classical um, surrounding of music, and much more so than popular. I love popular music, but I really wasn't surrounded with that as a, as a child. So were your parents fairly hands-on with music and you, or did they sit back and let other people you know, help with your development? Well, I studied with my mom um, 
through junior high lessons. And my dad really only got involved when it was um, time for solo ensemble contest. He would um, give me a couple lessons. And then through my junior year in high school, they were my only teachers. And then I had that experience with Fred Hemke. And then I started taking lessons. I'd fly down there every once in a while and take a lesson in my junior and senior year in high school. And I studied with a clarinet teacher at Northern Michigan University who also taught saxophone, but he was really a clarinetist. I mean, he had studied with Marcellus and he, that was, so Fred Hemke was actually the only uh, saxophonist I've ever studied with other than one lesson with Jean-Marie Landex. That's it. <laughs> that's, that's an unusual situation because I often hear of people moving almost in steps from teacher to teacher or uh, being passed around or sometimes changing countries and having a different cultural experience. So that's an unusual story. So would you say in your playing, and also we'll talk about this later, but your teaching, would you say that you're heavily influenced by Fred Hemke's uh, teachings or have you sort of branched out into your own direction? I would say I've definitely branched out into my own direction, but um, I would say that all of the, my teachers, including Fred Hemke, and I studied with Larry Combs for a year on clarinet, actually. He was the former uh, principal clarinetist of the Chicago Symphony when I was doing my master's degree. Every one of them, my parents, they all had in common that they were great musicians. And uh, so artistry has always been to the forefront for me. And when I studied with Fred Hemke, one of the most important things for me was that he let me be my own artist. He didn't try to tell me this is how it should go as long as I stayed within the parameters of correct style for the composer and the country and the time period and whatnot. But he really nur nurtured who I was as an artist. And that, that allowed me to grow and become the artist that I am today. And, and that that philosophy has never left me with my own students. Um, I try to teach them how to teach themselves um, and become their own artist rather than telling them, we'll do, do it my way. Do you think there's many students in general who try to emulate their teacher or are people able to step away? I do think that you hear that. Um, you can often tell um, by listening to someone um, who they listen to a lot, maybe their phrasing and their sound. But um, from day one, I don't think uh, Fred Hemke and I really sounded that much like each other, but he was a, uh, an enormous influence in me from the standpoint of getting me to feel, to believe in myself and to step outside my comfort zone emotionally and go for it in my playing, not hold back, as you can imagine how he is. And, uh, so, and he hardly ever played in my lessons. So it really allowed me to just be me. And, um, but, uh, and I'm really grateful for that. That was important to me. And so uh, I think that's really important. I, I'm that way with all of my students. Um, and I think uh, that my students all have their own individual style and um, sound and, uh, I think that's great. I don't want a bunch of clones of me running around. Now, of course, I was very sorry to hear of Fred's passing only recently, really. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes, we went to the celebration of life just, just a few days ago in Evanston and uh, saw so many people that he influenced. 
and that were friends of mine and in college even 40 years ago. So, um, but as you were saying about people jumping around, I think times are very different now. When I was studying, there, there weren't that many opportunities and people didn't really do that. And so it was not common to go from teacher to teacher. In fact, it was discouraged. Um, and that's something that's changed with all the wonderful people that have um, branched out and their students. And there's, there's always been great players, but there's many more great players now. And I think it's wonderful that there are so many opportunities for people to, to, to study with other people. Do you feel sometimes students see so many different teachers and hear so many different ideas, particularly masterclasses, that it can almost be overwhelming at times having so many differing uh, bits of information and contradictory ideas? Well, I think if it's a really young player who doesn't really have a grasp on the language, I think that could be uh, confusing. But for someone who's already a little bit more advanced in, in, in developing who they are, I, I always tell my students, no matter what they say, uh, go for it, try it and see what you like and leave the rest behind. There's always something that you can glean from every teacher and, and you're not necessarily going to agree with everything, but it gets you thinking. And, um, unless you're a really young student uh, and, and aren't going every week to a different teacher, I think it's all good. Yeah. There is a tendency sometimes that people will reject an idea without trying it. Yeah. And, of course, if you don't try it, then you don't really know if it applies or not. Right. So just putting some time into an idea, try it out, mm -hmm. and then you can make the decision as to whether to incorporate that or, or to let it go. Absolutely. It's a little while ago, but are you able to perhaps describe the way that you started out practising? Because you, you were quite young when you began. And I'd be curious mm. if, just if you could describe the ways that you practised as you evolved, you know, right at the start through high school and then into your tertiary studies? Well, as I said, I was um, in fourth grade and when I got into, uh, and I, I didn't play in a band, I just practiced um, lessons with my mom. And when I got into uh, middle school, uh, I had a teacher who ran a little contest, um, whoever practiced the most got a little prize. And of course, you know, that, that was, that was a good thing for me. <laughs> I, I was into that type of competitive spirit. And so my practicing really started from that. And I started practicing regularly an hour and a half every day, which for a sixth grader is, is to me, that was, it was more than I was doing and it made a big difference. And by the time I was in junior high, I had um, I had a, a mature vibrato. I was playing um, high school, college level pieces. And when I got into high school, I, I really didn't practice that much because I just didn't have the competition. And um, it wasn't until I got um, at, to Northwestern and I started studying with uh, Fred Hemke that, uh, um, that um, I really learned how to practice more than an hour and a half a day. And it, it, it really came about in a funny way because I would go into my lessons and everything would be fine. And one day, um, early on, I probably was still a freshman. I had played everything for him and he said, well, let's play some duets. And that was rare because I can only remember a few times that he ever played in my lessons. And I thought, wow, great. And he brought out duet after duet after duet, and they kept getting harder and harder. And I and I kept pace with him. 
And finally, he put down his horn and he looked at me and he said, if you can sight read like that, Mm -hmm. you are not practicing enough. (laughs) I want a new piece every week. And I want your scales up to 152 by next week. And so that was a real kick in the butt for me. And I thought he was um, a little bit crazy. And I went and talked to the grad students and they said, well, how much are you practicing? And I said, well, about an hour and a half. And they looked at me and they said, "Uh uh-uh, three hours minimum. So I learned. And then after that, between practicing three hours a day, an hour on scales, an hour on etudes, an hour on solo rep, and then my jazz band material and clarinet and flute. And I played in the grad quartet from my freshman year on in the wind ensemble. I was playing nine, ten hours a day. And um, yeah, (laughs) it was a big change. (laughs) That's a lot of practice. I'm sure you don't practice that much now. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) So... What is it that allows a professional saxophone player to practice way less than they did when they were a student? Well, I think it's just crucial to develop that foundation when you're young, when your muscles recover fast. I mean, it's the same in the sports world. You know, that's why the athletes time out at a certain age, depending on the sport, because the muscles just don't recover as fast. And so if you get strong and develop that facile, fluid, effortless technique and an understanding of phrasing and can put in that time when you're young, maintenance of it does not take nearly as much as what it took to build that kind of um, core strength and understanding. And then you just get more efficient. Um, I'm so much more efficient learning music than I was when I was younger and, and what my students, I mean, I can, I can learn more in an hour than it takes them weeks just because of the experience and, and knowing how to practice efficiently. And, and that's something that's really big in my teaching. Every one of my students coming in, um, I show them how to practice in a much more efficient way so that they're, they are playing from their ear instead of their eyes and um, playing from their heart instead of their head right away and how to retain it faster and, and, and so that they're making musical choices and I'm not just um, showing them how it goes. And uh, that's, that's something that comes from experience, but you can pass it on to students that have a basic um, musical intuition. If they don't have any basic musical intuition, then it's pretty hard to build from that. But if they do, boy, you can give them the tools and they can keep growing forever, which is what I've done. You know, I've got to tell you this story, and I won't mention any names, but there was a student who he was told by his teacher that his presentation had been good that week, but his G, his low G wasn't too good, and maybe he could fix that up. So he went away. And we walked past his practice room all week and he's practicing his G and he's practicing his G and his G and he came to the lesson the following week and <laughs> he played his G for the teacher and his teacher said, that's great, it's much better. Now, what are you playing this week? And he said, oh, I haven't, I haven't practiced anything else. I was working on my G. <laughs> <laughs> so he'd thrown a whole, oh a whole week uh, of inefficient practice at a problem. Oh boy. So do you ever find that, that people have just, they'll throw time at a problem, but they just, they'll refuse to embrace efficiency? Some students at first will um, balk at um, some of the strategies that I use because it, it, you really have to start 
smaller ideas and slower and putting formatas so things get into your ear and you're really able to hear where you're going and, and what's important, what you're saying and, and getting what's happening between the notes artistically. And sometimes at first they balk at that and they just want to play fast. Um, but once, once they, you t- I take it them through it enough times and they can see in the lesson how much better they played it. And they, in those few minutes and how many weeks have you been working on this? They begin to really, um, appreciate the value of, of learning these efficient skills. So imagine there was just one measure that you couldn't play. How would you break that down so that you could learn it as quickly as possible? Okay. Well, um, the first thing that I would do, and it really depends on, on uh, how fast the notes are and how many notes there are, but in general, let's say uh, if it's a 16th note passage, I'm going to start and I'm put formatas on every other 16th note. So on the downbeat and on the upbeat of every beat. And I'm going to sit on that formata until my ear really hears it and I know where I'm going next. And I'm making sure that, I mean, I can play two notes in a row correctly if I'm paying attention, you know? Yep. <laughs> and I hope so. <laughs> we hope, right? <laughs> and making my rules are always the right notes, always the right articulation, because it's a drag to have to undo those later. And um, and I don't leave the note and the fermata note until my ear has already decided, is this going to be a passing note or is this an important note? And then I do two more and two more and two more and each fermata until my ear says that's enough. That's all I'm going to remember right now. It might be two beats. It might be one beat. It might be three measures. It just depends on how predictable the music is and how uh, many notes there are if it's 30 seconds I would do every two and then every four if it's triplets I do every three and the next go around I'm I'm removing the least important formata notes and going a little slower so I'm still really hearing where I'm going and I'm making artistic decisions and then I go faster between those formata notes then I remove some more formata notes then I go faster between the remaining formata notes and doing reps until I can play whatever that passage is up to tempo with the character that I want and my repetitions are now solely focused on the artistry and not on the technique. Um, and if I can't do five to ten in a row without making, well, my rule is only two mistakes in a row. If I make more than two mistakes in a row, then I either add another fermata back in or I go slower. It's the correct repetition that gets you there so fast. It's allowing yourself to make mistakes that confuses your ear and your fingers. So if you couldn't get it in one practice session, would you just would you take a short break? Would you come back the next day? How, how important is the time between those repetitions to ensure you're getting the passages right? I will always have it right from the very beginning. Uh, it's just I won't have it up to tempo, and it might still have fermatas in it. But it's always going to be in character. It's always going to be the right notes, the right articulations. And so I will work to get it, that whatever I'm working on, up to tempo as far as I can until I'm sick of it right now, and I'm moving on to something else. And I'll come back to it tomorrow. If I come back to it tomorrow and I'm like starting over, well, that means I didn't do enough repetitions if I didn't retain anything. So one of the keys to repetition is by repeating things, they tend to stick in your memory. Is memorization an automatic part of that process that you do or is memorization something that you work on separately? I don't have a great memory, but for playing by memorization, 
because I learn music so fast. I, what I see on the page reminds my ear of what's coming up and I can just do it. Um, but to be able, and I do practice by memory at home and passages, but to memorize an entire piece is a lot of work for me because I can play the piece and understand the journey of the piece long before I can recall every bit of it without um, any guide um, visually. But um, I do think it's, I, I have, I play from my ear. So whether I'm using music or not, I'm always playing from my ear. I hear some people describe the, the sheet music as a sort of hindrance between them and the audience. Mm -hmm. But I also hear the, the opposite of that where playing from memory is a hindrance because they're so worried. Yes. <laughs> so, I mean, which way would you describe? What is that to you? I, I think. I think it really depends on the player. I've got some students that they can practice a piece for a couple of weeks and by the time they can play the notes, they've got it by memory and it's just no big deal for them. And I, gosh, I wish I was that way, but I'm just not. I'm the other way around. Um, so I, I think for me, the most important thing with connecting with an audience, whether you have music or not, is 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 your intention when you're playing from your soul. And I, I, when I practice, I'm actually aware of the audience. They're in my practice room with me. I am, I am playing to them, for them, with them, whether it's one person because it's something intimate, or whether I'm playing to the whole audience at once. And even if I'm playing to one person, I'm aware that the audience is there. So that when I get on stage, it's nothing new. I've already been playing for them and connecting with them. And a, and a good example of that is, is if you're having a conversation with someone and you know their mind is elsewhere, even if they're looking at you, you're not connecting with them. But if they're look, if, if they're um, directing their energy to you and you feel that connection, um, you, you don't have to necessarily even be looking directly in their eyes to feel that connection. So for me, it's all about the energetic connection and the intention um, and if I'm directing it outward and they're paying attention, they, they will feel it. And that's the way I am as an audience member. When I listen to myself back on recordings and, I, and I'm rehearsing, practicing, I try to listen to it from my heart. And so what do I feel? And if I don't feel anything, then I know I was in my head when I was practicing instead of playing from my heart. And if I feel emotionally moved, whatever my intention was when I listen to it back, then I know an audience will too. Great. Now, you've been teaching at the University of Illinois. Is it 1991 you started there? Mm-hmm. And I taught at North Texas for 10 years before that. That's almost 30 years uh, in the one university. Right. And 10 years before that, that's uh, almost 40 years teaching. Yes. Now. <laughs> Hard to believe. <laughs> could. <laughs> Hard to believe. Yeah. Could you describe currently, you know, what's your typical week look like as far as your teaching goes? It varies from semester to semester because I'm always um, working my schedule around my students' schedules and when they have classes and trying to, to find blocks of time where I can teach lessons. So I have blocks of time for my um, my own whether it's committee work or family work or practicing or if I'm preparing for something um, or whether I'm working on um, uh, writing, scholarly writing. And um, so it varies. Um, I usually will like to prefer to teach maybe three or four hours a day and then have the, the, the rest of the day for those other things. 
um, this past couple of years, I've been um, uh, working on a book that Theodore Presser is going to be publishing soon, which I'm really excited about. So I needed larger chunks of time. So I taught larger um, chunks of lessons. And, and sometimes I would be there till nine, nine o'clock at night <laughs> um, so that I could have uh, those days to, to, to write. Are you able to talk about that book or is it a surprise coming up? I'd love to talk about it. Great. What is it? What's the topic? <laughs> <laughs> it's being published by Theodore Presser, which is really exciting. And it's called Between the Notes, a Saxophonist Guide to Practice, Performance and Pedagogy. And it's 24 chapters. And uh, the first third of it is uh, each chapter is a different fundamental and the second third is, is different teach, um, uh, practice techniques and performance and techniques. And then the last section is teaching techniques. So uh, it's really exciting. My students have been trying to get me to write this for about 10 years now. And I tried and I, I didn't get anywhere at first. It was I just didn't know how to do it, how to write it. This is, my, my teaching is so experiential in the moment. What I hear, I react to. And I didn't know how to write that down in a way that anybody would want to read it, including myself. And um, so I kind of fell by the wayside. And then uh, a few years ago, three three years ago, I was doing a master class. And, and once again, a former student, Don, Dr. Connie Frigo this time, came up to me and said, you have to write a book. I'm like, oh, gosh, I'm rolling my eyes. I've tried. And she goes, oh, you got to do it. She pushed me to, to, to write this book again. Uh, uh, my former student, Dr. Michael Bavenzi, was the one that tried to get me started on it 10 years ago. And then when I expressed to Dr. Frigo's um, that when she asked me if I would do it, I said, well, I don't know about the writing part. And she said, well, I'll help you. And what that ended up actually turning out to be was my um, writing each chapter and sending the rough draft to her, not worrying at all about um, making it perfect, just getting my ideas down. And then she would um, spend time uh, editing it and, and, and putting together ideas of how it might be formatted and what information I might add and send it back. And then I would rewrite things and send it back. And this would go back and forth between each of us doing editing and her offering suggestions until it just became clear that it said what, what my teaching was all about. And what really helped the process too was she actually took the time and came out, flew out and visited uh, me for an entire week and watched me teach all of my students for a week and my master classes with them just to, to, to see what my teaching was like today. Cause when she did her master's with me, that was many years ago. And, and, uh, that was wonderful. So that when, when she would read what I was talking about, she had seen me do those very techniques and it, and it really helped having her input and a second set of eyes and her encouragement and just kind of nudging me, you know, well, how's it coming? You know, things like that. And I, I'm not sure I would have ever finished the book if it hadn't been for her. So I'm really grateful for her help. I can't wait to have it as a teaching tool for myself and my students and former students are all excited to have it too. It's, 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 it's really um, kind of my life's work as a teacher and performer. Yeah. Wrapping up the experience you've had over those years of teaching. Yeah. One thing I'm really curious about is how did you go about learning a new skill, which is writing? Mm -hmm. how, how did you get over that 
that hurdle you had where you were, you were a bit stuck and you couldn't write, what changed that enabled you to start to get your ideas down in a way that you were happy with? That's a good question. And I'll tell you what the difference was for me. When I first started trying to write it, I was trying to write it each chapter as if it's a finished product. And, and, and that was, it was just too overwhelming. And so what I did instead is I just like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven points as if I was teaching someone and this is the points of what I would go and just getting the ideas across and not worried about trying to connect the sentences or correct, connect the ideas or anything, just getting everything down and then going back and, and worrying about, well, how to put these ideas together in cohesive paragraphs and whatnot and filling in blanks that needed to maybe say a little bit more about, but wow, what it, it was so much more freeing because I, yeah. I, I wasn't trying to write the finished product from day one. In your mind, were you addressing a single person as you wrote or were you being general? Um, well, I, I've been really talking to um, a, a saxophonist or another musician. So much of the book applies to any musician um, and so it, it's general and specific at the same time. That's, it's, it's a hard question to answer, but both. <laughs> a writer told me that if you try to write to please everybody, you please nobody. Yeah, it's like I'm, t- I'm teaching to someone um, and, and if they come across this problem. And the, yeah, and that did help too, exactly what you're saying. Um, having thinking of who your audience is and and who you're talking to as you're writing. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like you've acquired a new skill? You know that it's almost like picking up a new instrument. Is it like that? Well, I've always enjoyed writing, but I've never done anything like this before. So I, I think I was a good writer from the standpoint of just basic being able to put together. Um, good flowing sentences and paragraphs and beginning and end. And I will say that it, what was fascinating about the process is, and I was talking to Ghani about this, was the more I got into it and the more we got to the, the, the later stages, it, it felt so much like when you're learning a really big piece. You know, you're, you, you're doing it in stages at first, but then you start to really look at it from a larger perspective and, and how does this fit in within this section and this movement? And then what is the arc of the whole piece and what's the journey that you're taking? And, um, going through those different stages with the book, it, it just kept reminding me of the process that I go through when I learn a piece of music. Now, you're talking about Connie. I remember the last time I saw you both together, <laughs> we were in a bar in Zagreb and I think the World Cup was on or the semifinal. Yeah, it was the semifinal for the World Cup last July. Oh, yes. <laughs> and there was this crazy party going on around in the whole city and Selma had organised a, a party for the saxophone players. Yes. And all this was happening all at once and I was talking to both you and Connie and I remember that and you were discussing uh, the Committee on the Status of Women and the saxophone, and you're an advisor to this committee. Could you talk about what this group is and also what your role is uh, in advising this group? As you can imagine, um, in the saxophone world, particularly when I first started out, there there weren't very many women. Um, in, in fact, uh, there were no other female saxophone professors 
when I first started out. And um, gradually we've seen more and more, although um, there are only five full professors in the United States of women saxophone professors in the whole country, which is pretty uh, shocking, actually, when you think about it. And, um, and we looked at some um, sister organizations such as trumpet, um, uh, double reeds, flute, and, and, and so many of them now have uh, committees on the status of women. And uh, with with the goal in mentoring women, particularly in in instruments that are that are male dominated, not so much flute, but um, brass and and composition were two that we really looked at, and um, helping mentor young women and um, just having them a chance to meet others. Um, and so we modeled uh, it off of that and presented um, the idea at uh, the national conference. And uh, it was immediately unanimously voted in. So it now is part of the bylaws that there is a committee on the status of women. And the, uh, Connie's the president. I didn't want to be the president because I was in the middle of writing this book and couldn't take on anything else. Um, and, but to be an, an advisor, you know, so I'm not actively involved with it, but I am men- one of the mentors. Um, they set up different mentors and then you could apply to be a mentee and, and there are male and female mentors, but the mentees are all women at this point. And, um, they paired us up, um, with one person and, um, we're looking at, um, commissioning some female composers and it's, it's just bringing awareness for, for for women in in how to navigate in the, in a male dominated world because it is different, you know, when you you're in a profession where you're vastly the minority, um, and just understanding um, your role and how to navigate that, I think it's invaluable. I would have loved to have had that mentorship when I was young. Where I come from in Australia, there I would say fairly even numbers of this is starting out men and women playing the saxophone and then moving into university studies it's very similar but there seems to be a drop-off after that is there any sort of consensus on why that is we saw that here too uh, that there's many more women at the earlier ages and then as you get up into grad school it drops off and then getting jobs it drops off and and there haven't been enough studies to really be able to say a consensus of why that happens, but it's not uncommon. It's not just saxophone. It's an academic uh, in general. You see, we see that, um, whether it's because they go and have families or they don't get hired. I, it's hard to say. It's, there, there isn't any one factor. Let's say you're putting applications together for performances. Should there be some guideline to say we need more equal representation in big performances well i don't know how cut and dried that should be you know that because that gets really tricky but i do think that the awareness needs to be there that um and it's and it's not just with women it's also with minorities that um sometimes we do have to reach out and give them an opportunity to to be showcased so that uh, it opens up more doors for other 
women or minorities to see that yes, this this is a attainable. You know, it's the old glass ceiling thing, and um, whether you know to, to say well there must be this many or a certain percentage, I don't know. But these are the kinds of questions that are being asked. Um, this past year, the North American Saxophone Alliance at every single regional conference. Um, members of the committee, um, including myself, held, um, what do you want to call it, panel discussion, uh, where we talked to, the, to everybody that came to the audience, you know, what are your questions, what are your ideas, how can we um, bridge this gap, and it was so exciting, and we all had the same questions and presentations, So, and then it's all being compiled right now, but it was fascinating and, and so encouraging to see the, the men and women that came to and their ideas that they had and the excitement level, and so it's really in the beginning stages of this, so I, I can't really answer your question just yet, but those are the kinds of things we're asking. This might seem insane now. But in 1992, there was, I think, one, maybe two Chinese saxophone players at the Congress. And there were some issues of um, having enough money to pay for some things. And there was a general call for some support to help with, um, you know, some funding. And everybody threw in just, you know, not much money, a few dollars. Everyone threw in in a bit of money, but it was enough to enable the support, you know, to move to the next thing. You would not say now, you would not say is a minority any longer. There's so many people playing coming out of China. I know politically things have changed, but sometimes a little bit of support can really go a long way. It's so true, and it's and it's really exciting. I mean, I was the first woman to get to play a featured concerto at a World Saxophone Congress, the first woman to give a master class, and that's how it gets started. You know, and now you see more and more people doing it. And I, and, and I, I hope that at every large conference, there's at least one woman that's being represented, you know, and I, and just having that awareness, you know, when you're making those choices. I mean, should it be a deserving person? Of course. But I think there's plenty of great women out there and great minorities out there that we, that, that we can make those inclusions. Um, if, if we have that awareness that it's important. Now, alongside your long, career as a teacher you've also performed very widely both as a soloist and also in orchestras and all sorts of different aspects of music how have you managed to develop and maintain different aspects of music while holding down full-time teaching jobs well it's a juggling act that's for sure and it's hard and um, it was certainly easier when I was single um, because family is so important to me. And when I got married and, and we have, uh, well, our, our son's 16 now, he's not a baby anymore, but, um, priorities, it's figuring out your priorities and the priorities shift depending on, on, on what's going on in, in, in my life. Um, when I was younger, I did all kinds of backup for entertainers for about 15 years and played Barry sax, flute, clarinet, and bass clarinet in those uh, situations. And, and it was great fun. And I did that. Um, and then when I came to North, to University of Illinois, I decided, okay, I need to let that go. It was fun, but now I'm too busy. And so I let that go, even though I loved doing it and made the, and I, and I don't do much playing inside orchestras anymore. I played with the Dallas Symphony for 10 years and, oh my gosh, I played hundreds of concerts with them. It was incredible. I learned so much and it was so much fun. 
when I moved here, I played with the St. Louis Symphony for a few years, but it's three hours each way instead of a half an hour. And I finally let that go. And now my former students do it. And it's wonderful to see that. So it's just making choices and priorities. And I am very select about what what performances, opportunities that I say yes to. I say no many more than I say yes to because I look at my students and I realize if I'm gone all the time, that's not good for them. And then I have to make up all the lessons and it's just, and it's not good for my family. And when my son was young, I hardly did any far away performing because my husband drives 65 miles each way to his job. And um, I had to be here um, to be able to take him to school. And, and so it's always a matter of juggling and and you can't do everything. And um, probably the thing that, suffered the most was my personal practice time. So had to get even more efficient. <laughs> it's lucky you're so efficient. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> are you someone who yeah. finds it difficult to say no, or are you are quite pragmatic about choosing what you do with your time? I, I'm much better about saying no now than I was when I was younger. Uh, you know, you, I hated saying no when I was younger because you didn't know if you'd get that opportunity again. And, um, but I, I look at it now, I've, I've learned how it's like you learn with experience. Well, how many weeks or months do I need to prepare this music for a recital? You just learn from, from not being prepared and well, I guess I should have practiced longer for that. Right. And I've learned now I can only have so many things on my plate and so many committees where the stress level is just too much for me and the cost is too high. So it has to be something that um, is important in terms of um, my contribution to the saxophone world. It has to be something that I'm going to enjoy and it's going to be something that is good for my students as well. I'm very selective about what what I say yes to. I see sometimes a tendency for saxophone players to play for other saxophone players. Is there something that you've done that takes the saxophone out into the wider community where you're playing for people who don't play the instrument and are just there because they love the music? Yes, I have had the opportunity to do that, and I love doing that. When I get to do concertos with orchestras, very, um, it's they oftentimes, especially 10, 20 years ago, they've never heard classical saxophone before, and and they they're they're amazed by it and love it and it's really special and um, that's that's one of my favorite things to do because you're you're really bringing the beauty of the classical saxophone to mainstream uh, music lovers and that never even knew it existed and I and I love doing that and I've I've played at people's weddings I've played at funerals and I've played at all kinds of things where. Um, there isn't another saxophonist in the room. There's just people who love music and love the, the connection that we get through music and the emotions. And and so to me, sometimes that's the most special audiences to play for. Now, I see that you've worked a lot with composers and premiering works. How important has it been to you to work closely with creating new works, you know, with the composer and also premiering the pieces in their first concert? It's wonderful to get to work um, with composers. Um, one of my first solo CD that I recorded when I came here um, was uh, all uh, commissioned works of composers on our faculty. 
Um, and it was so wonderful to be able to go to them and play for them different pieces and, and then come back and, and they'd give me some ideas and, and then we'd go back and I'd say, well, um, I think this is what you're intending, but on the saxophone, that's impossible. How does this sound? And I'd play it and they'd go, oh yeah, that's what I meant. It's like, oh great, this is much easier than what you wrote. <laughs> <laughs> and if I have that opportunity, there's nothing better because they want um, it to be accessible and I want it to be accessible to a wide variety of players and a wide variety of audiences. And if it's, if it's only accessible to me and a really tiny, small audience, um, then, then that's, that's a shame, you know. So um, I have been involved with some larger commissions where I didn't get to, to have any input with the composer until after it was all done. And, and that's not my preference, but as long as they were working with a saxophonist, um, I think the product is always better. Have you seen anything in music that gives you a hint as to why some pieces will endure and other pieces will just kind of fall by the wayside once they've been premiered? Yes, I, I definitely think there are some factors in that. Um, sometimes, um, and there was a phase that, that some composers were really interested in exploring, and it's all great exploring different things, but exploring um, mathematical models and computer-generated things, and, and the music was quite intellectual. And from that point, it, it was very interesting, but... Um, even to musicians listening, sometimes, well, for me, I can speak for myself. If if I'm not engaged emotionally, um, I lose interest pretty quickly. And so it's important for me whenever I'm working on a piece that I'm finding what's the journey, what what is what is the composer saying, and what how does that relate to my life experience and my heart, and I and 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 if that's authentic for me, then someone else will feel it through their own lens of life experience, and it'll be a very personal experience. And I think when when a piece is written that doesn't touch us in that way, um, we can sort of take it or leave it. And and um, those pieces that move us somehow, no matter what the emotion is, those are the pieces that endure. Now, I was reading your biography before, I think somewhat unusually, you have a, a kind of list of some of your former students. It seems to me that your students are a very important part of your life, not just when you're teaching them, but also into the development of their careers afterwards. Would that be right? Absolutely. And I'm really behind in updating those lists. That list is <laughs> years old. I need to get in there and, and get it updated because some of those people don't even have different jobs now and have been promoted <laughs> and have higher ranks and new people that I could add to the list. It, to me, they become family. Um, that's one of the things that I just really love so much about teaching is that it's much more than teaching saxophone. It's, it's about helping people grow and figure out who they are and um, and, and, and helping them become their own teacher. I mean, there, there comes a point where I get to let go and just say, okay, you've got the skills, you've got the tools now to keep growing for life. And, and, and that's exciting. It's, it's, it's like the parent that sends the child off. Okay, now go, go for it, you know, and, but, 
but when you connect with people in that way and and helping them have the courage to 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 take risks and be vulnerable and 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 understand that failure is a part of learning and growing and, and it's it's a really close relationship and there's trust involved in both sides and um, yeah that there it's so special and I. I do stay close to them because they became a part of my heart. I bumped into someone last year and he said he had taught 2,000 different students. Oh, my. <laughs> and because I'd bumped into one of his students and she wondered why he'd fallen out of contact. And I asked him about it and he said, look, you know, after 2,000 students, each student is so important in the moment and at one point, you just have to let them go because there's so many people. Yeah, it's it's easier today than it used to be to keep in touch because of of Facebook and and all of those things. But when I first started teaching, it was very hard um, to keep in touch. You know, especially when I moved from Texas to Illinois, so I'm not in touch with some of them as much as um, I I might today. But still, even through Facebook. Um, um, I, I can see what's happening in their lives and seeing them get married and have families and be teachers and what or go into other professions. I mean, that's fun too. Um, so no, it's not possible to keep in touch with every single one, but um, when, when the intention is there on both sides, it, it happens, even not as frequently as you might like. It's like your friend that you only see every few years, but it feels like no time has passed when you see them. Sure. One area I would love to pick your brain a little bit is in relation to interpretation. And I'm curious to know where interpretation actually comes from. Is it just a mix of other people's interpretations? Is it just copied from someone? Or can interpretation be a convincing and unique idea? Well, I would hope that it's always a convincing and unique idea, yeah. but there are certainly parameters within that. Um, I would not play a piece of Baroque music the same way I would play a piece from the Romantic period and vice versa. I mean, there, um, I think it's important to know um, if it's if you didn't write it yourself, if it, it, to know something about the composer and their other works and where they're from and what time period and their style. I think all those things inform musical interpretation. And, uh, and then I think also um, gleaning what they wrote in terms of dynamics and tempos, they, that can help really inform what, what they had in mind and, and, and what makes sense. Because if you know, sometimes just even one, one tempo change can turn something from being tender to making it um, melancholy or something that is um, passionate to making it bravura, a very different feel. And so I think it's important to try to figure out what they had in mind. And, and so often, well, especially with good music, there's a, there is a certain tempo that brings it alive and it makes sense. It's like, oh, okay, this all, oh, I get it now. I see where they were going and the changes in dynamics. It, for me, it's not just loud or soft. It's, well, why did they write forte? What kind of, what, what am I saying here that would warrant me playing loud? I mean, it could be anything from passionate to exhilarated to, to anxious to, 
I mean, there's so many different, and the same with piano. I mean, it could be, it could be um, tender, it could be melancholy, it could be teasing. And there, so I'm, I'm looking for that journey that makes sense, that, that's cohesive to the whole piece. And, and of course, life experience so plays into it. Um, if I'm playing a piece that's about loss, it's going to be so much more poignant for me now having lost both parents than, and, and certainly in relationships, we've all lost um, love and lost in that, in that world. Um, it's going to be, have such more depth of feeling than someone who's maybe 16 and, and talented completely, but just hasn't had those life experiences yet. So, and every time you play, for me, it's different. It's uh, it's a different take on it, and that's what that's what keeps it interesting. If I had to play everything exactly the same every day, I'd be bored out of my mind. How do we balance listening to recordings and being informed by an interpretation, and listening and being biased by listening to a recording? Yeah, that's a that's an excellent question, and there there is a line there. And for me, I tend to not listen to recordings of pieces that I'm working on um, in the beginning stages ever because I want to do that discovery of the piece um, without bias. I might do some work on the composer and maybe listen to other pieces that the composer wrote, particularly symphonies or orchestral works, things like that, um, to just to get a feel for their their harmony and their, their um, sensibilities. But um, I like to have an idea of how what makes sense to me in the of the piece before I will listen to other interpretations. Now, if it's a transcription, after I've done that, I will then go look for interpretations and um, listen and, and and find the one that that's similar that makes sense to me. That that and 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 just see what do I like and what do I don't like, and that way it can be informative without um, a bias. Because I, but I. I discourage people from listening to a recording 18, 20, 30 times before they even start practicing because um, then they don't really learn how to do discovery of a piece. And they're and it and they really, whether they know it or not, they're copying someone else. Um, and um, that's fine when you're learning the language and, and maybe really important when you're first learning the language, like jazz players do transcriptions of all different artists to learn the language. But at some point you need to be able to put your own, your own unique interpretation into it. Is there something that you believe that few people agree with? I don't know. I I can say that one thing that I've noticed seems to be different when, when students come to work with me, there's a real common um, teaching um, style, not just in the saxophone world, but in, in, in many musicians where the philosophy is learn the uh, technique first and then add the expression and emotion later. And I, I just, I don't find that to be um, a good um, strategy. Uh, I'm very much um, into practicing with artistic intention. And in fact, it's a very big part of my book because that's such a core part of my teaching. Um, so that you're developing the oral muscle memory and the emotional muscle memory and the technical muscle memory from day one and not having to go back and undo all of those things to, to, to change the, the muscle memories. 
Thank you. If you just had one piece of music that you could play from now on, <laughs> is there something that you would love to keep playing? Boy, that's an impossible question, but uh, I do love to improvise at home when I'm not uh, mm. trying to um, uh, prepare for an uh, upcoming concert. And I can, um, j- I'd love to just stand in my kitchen on the wood floor and just whatever mood I'm in, whatever m- mood um, emotions, I, I just, um, I love to just um, improvise. And so I would always do that. But if I had to pick a written piece, um, I, I would go to something that, that just has so many memories for me. And that particular piece would be Rachmaninoff vocalies solely because um, that piece, it's, it, I've played it at people's weddings, people's funerals. Um, it, it brings back so many wonderful and important memories and times in my life that um, uh, I, I would always want to, keep those memories alive through that piece and those emotions. If you just had one hour to practice, how would you spend your time? Well, that's usually all I ever have anymore. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> Truthfully. It's um, like one hour. That's so much. <laughs> <laughs> it's not much. Um, it, it does, again, depend on what I'm, what I'm doing. I will warm up. I think that's really important to, to get the muscles warmed up so that you're not uh, – um, playing full blast um, immediately. And my goal when I first start playing is to have everything feel effortless and sound great and I can play soft and loud um, effortlessly. Uh, there's no strain involved. And um, sometimes the muscles um, take a little longer than others to relax and, and, and have that happen, but that's really important. And I'll probably have the tuner sounding just so I'm maybe just even playing C major scale on top of it to just get everything to open up and gradually adding vibrato and going into the altissimo and, and, and gradually getting louder so that I can, I can start on that high F in the Glazunov and, and play it effortlessly full volume. And then I know I'm, I'm ready to actually practice. Um, and if I've got a concert coming up, I'm going to be working on the parts of the, um, the pieces that need the most work, I won't uh, often give myself the luxury of practicing the stuff I already can play. I'll just make sure that um, with ev- within every two to three days, I've, I've been through all of the music, but I make sure I'm spending the majority of the time on the things that aren't there yet. To do something effortlessly requires an awful lot of effort. <laughs> and it's almost like it's important for the audience not to see any of that effort mm-hmm. that it, for them is coming out with ease. Is effortlessness something physical or is it more of an approach in your mind? It's both. I think it's so important to figure out how to play um, something um, with the least amount of physicality as possible um, and and keeping your, your mind um Obviously, if you're playing a very intense emotion, there, there, there is high, high energy. But if you're playing with, with muscle tension or um, anxiousness emotionally, that changes the music. The audience can feel that tension at some level, and you're going to tire out faster, and you're going to feel that at some level. So uh, awareness of, uh, I mean, if you 
watch, you know, great players. They're out there, great violinists. They're out there moving a mile a minute, but they they have figured out how to make it easy. And that's what I'm always looking for is how can I make this sound better, but be easier. Very nice. Now, <laughs> I think this is probably a horrible question, <laughs> but <laughs> <Uh-oh>. <laughs> who do you consider to be one of the most successful contributors to the saxophone and why? Oh, my goodness. There are so many people on that list. How can you narrow it down to one? <laughs> I don't think that I could, but um, I, like, I go back to the, to the earlier ones because they started it for us. You know, Marcel Newell and, and Lon Dex and Sigurd Vasher and Cynthia and Rousseau and Henke. And because they, they, they started, uh, well, and Adolf Sachs too, thank you. <laughs> we, we couldn't be here without him. Um, and, and so they, they had a vision and they started it. Um, if, I, if I had to pick one, it, it, would, it would be Fred Hemke because of my personal connection with him and, and um, his belief of, of um, uh, making music as an art and as an expression, and, and that transcends the saxophone. You know, all of the people you sort of reeled off then, every one of them has left a legacy behind, both through their performances, the composers they worked with, but also through the long list of students that they taught. I can see the same thing in in your own career, that you've germinated a whole generation of musicians that have, have come from your teaching. Do you think that the legacy of a teacher is something that we should think about while we're working, or is it just a an outcome that happens from the things that we do. My goal is always to keep growing as a person and as an artist and as a musician. And and as I grow as an artist and a musician, my teaching changes, my playing changes, and how I work with students change. And and um, that to me is is what it's all about. And and then I see them going out and doing marvelous things. I learn from them too. And it's, it's a two way street. So. I've never gone about it from the intention of, of creating a legacy. It's always just working with whomever I'm working with and helping them to be the best they can be. Great, thanks. Now, if we learn from our mistakes, is it okay to make mistakes? <laughs> it's essential. I think uh, it's through failure that we learn the most. And, and uh, if we're afraid to try something because we, we might fail, we... we we really shortchange our growth. I was talking to somebody the other day who was saying improvisation is essentially um, a series of mistakes. <laughs> that, <laughs> and through that process is where great music comes from. So it's essential from an improvisatory sort of compositional point of view. You were describing improvising before. Is that something that you do publicly or is it a private uh, part of music making for you? It's private for me. I, I, I have not put in the time um, to learn. And my improvising is not jazz. It's, um, it's classical oriented, although sometimes I'll, I'll throw some jazz in there, whatever I'm in the mood for. But I have not spent the time to learn how to improvise um, on um, written out changes. Um, um, all the backup work that I did was out. The reason I played Barry was so I didn't have to stand up and take solos. But I, when I'm playing on my own, it's always I'm playing, I'm hearing where the melody's going and the harmonies in my head as I'm playing. And 
so I'm making it up as I go. And so, yeah, somebody could transcribe changes of what I'm doing, but I'm not following those changes as I'm going. I'm, I'm creating them. Beautiful. Now, before you go on stage, what's the most important thing that you do to ensure that you're going to be playing at your best? Mm. Yeah, that's so important for everybody to figure that out. And everybody's a little bit different. Um, for me, I like to make sure that um, I've got about an hour and a half to make sure my body is where it needs to be um, in terms of relaxed and, 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 and ready to play effortlessly. It's like the person that's going to go run the four-minute mile, they make sure their muscles are ready or they're not going to run their four-minute mile because um, they're going to be tense. I'm, so that's a part of it for me. And I play a little bit, rest, play a little bit, rest, play a little bit, rest, until I can just play and it isn't hard work for me. Um, I don't. I, there's no strain in physically. And then I make sure that um, um, I'm I'm relaxed and I'm excited and I'm I'm drawing in the the, the energy of the universe and I'm I know this sounds kind of woo but and then and and then projecting that love outward I'm uh, so that energy I'm already directing that energy to the audience before I even walk on stage because as I mentioned earlier it's about communicating to the audience and and making that connection energetically. And energy is real before I even walk on stage. And if I'm focusing on that, I love to connect with people. Um, then I'm excited and I'm thinking through the piece. I'm singing through the piece. I'm getting in that mood. And if, and if really doing that, then the nerves are a different emotion. So it really helps keep those things more um, as extra adrenaline to heighten the emotions of the piece ver rather than feeling nervousness because that's a different emotion. And the last thing that's really important for me is I make sure that I have apple juice <laughs> because I, I can be a bit hypoglycemic and I learned the hard way many years ago that um, if I don't have ap apple juice about 15 minutes before I go on stage, adrenaline makes your blood sugar drop. And um, I'd get on stage when I, and, and all of a sudden I couldn't think and I'd start sweating and shaking and I didn't realize what the heck's going on. And I learned that and now that never happens to me anymore. And I've told a lot of students about it. And for some, they don't need it. It depends on your physiology. And for some, it's, it's been a game changer as it was for me. Do you think about your audience while you're playing? I don't think of them as an audience as much as I, I think of sharing and connecting what I'm saying to them through the music. Would you say that your career has developed through a plan or has it been a more organic process? Uh, definitely more organic. I mean, I've been through lots of different things. Um, I knew I wanted to play something professionally when I was in college. I thought I wanted to teach at the university. Um, but beyond that, I, I didn't really have a plan. And over the years, some physical um, injuries through car accidents changed my plan radically. And uh, But from each thing that, that happened that I might have thought was bad at the time, something great came out of it that wouldn't have happened or I grew in a way I wouldn't have grown if it, those things hadn't happened as a teacher or as an artist. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's, I, I have to say it's been more organic. Is there something both that you do yourself but also that you advise to ensure that we can enjoy long and healthy careers? 
Yes, I do think that it's important that students um, and, well, professionals, uh, obviously, too, but be aware of, of um, the muscles and what, what, how to use them in a safe way, how to do stretching, how to be, stay hydrated, because hydrated muscles are stronger, um, how to uh, be aware of the ergonomics of whatever instrument you're playing so that you're playing as more efficiently, you're not in home position with stretched tendons, which is a recipe for getting tendonized. I mean, they're just learning some of those things um, and paying attention to your body, I think is really important. And, and when your body is hurting, that's a red flag and you need to figure out, you know, is it because I'm doing something that's ergonomically not correct that I need to stop doing? Or did I just play too much today and I need a day off? Do you think in practice it's better to do quite small amounts with small breaks or larger amounts with larger breaks? I think you need to do both. I, I, I think the small amounts, especially as you're gaining endurance, is really important. You gain endurance safer and faster by having small amounts. Um, Bud Herseth, who was principal trumpet of the Chicago Symphony for decades, used to say, yeah, I practice 10 minutes all day long. <laughs> With a bit of hindsight, is there a piece of advice you'd like to send back to your younger self that you would have loved to have heard? Stretch more. I didn't know about stretching back mm. then. Um, it, for us, it was like, oh, my neck's killing me, and that was like a badge of honor, and, and now I know better. And um, also just to um, not be afraid to take risks um, and to, 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 to really um, – understand that it's all about connecting with the audience. I, it took me many years to figure that out. And so I felt so connected to the university in my practice room, but I'd get on stage and it's like, holy cow, there's an audience there looking at me. And um, uh, it took me a long time to figure out th how to turn that to a positive for me so that um, playing on stage was as enjoyable as playing in my living room. Could you describe to me a risk in, in saxophone playing? Well, I think a risk in anything in life is stepping outside of your comfort zone, um, being willing to try things that you might fail at and, 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 and realizing that that's okay and that's actually important. And so embracing um, the, the, the possibility of failure um, as a learning process that's necessary rather than being afraid of it. I mean, you mentioned that making mistakes is an essential part of our development. Are you okay when things don't go right? Do you cope? Well. Uh, nobody likes it when things don't go well, um, but I have learned um, the hard way that um, the, the most important thing, I used to put pressure on myself, to, you know, it's got to be flawless, it's got to be perfect, because I was capable of that, but that's a really high standard and nobody's perfect, and um, so if that's your standard, that's a lot of, that's a lot of stress, and I learned over the years um, that if my goal is to to play from my heart and soul and be authentic and, and risk emotionally, I have control of that. And if I play a wrong note and my ear knows where I'm going next, I can recover, then that takes the fear of playing a wrong note off. And I equate that to if we're having this conversation and I stumble over a word or two, that, that doesn't ruin our conversation. Now, are there changes that you've seen in the saxophone world and are there things that have stayed the same that have surprised you? There are so many things that have changed. Oh, my gosh. I mean, there's so much more repertoire out there now um, and much more difficult repertoire, so many more players, so much more 
opportunities to listen to other players. You know, you can get on YouTube and, 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 and Spotify and just hear so much more than when I was, was young. The, the, we had LPs and there weren't, it was hard to get, um, records, recordings from people outside of the United States. And that's changed drastically. And that's wonderful. Um, one of the things that, and also it's changed in terms of the, we are now breaking into the mainstream. You know, we see soloists playing with major orchestras, quartets playing with major orchestras, uh, winning Grammys. I mean, just, it's just so exciting and so wonderful. Um, I, I guess the one thing that I, I, I would like to see that more of that. I mean, we, it's, it's now, it's still an anomaly. It's, it's not commonplace. And, um, I would love to see um, it be easier for for that to happen, but boy, it, it's it's much more prevalent than it used to be, and that's exciting. And now, when I play with orchestras, they're not surprised that the saxophone can sound good. They've heard a good saxophone before. This isn't the first time, and that's exciting. So, what are some things that haven't changed? Well, we're not fully accepted in in we're not. We can't get a job playing in an orchestra because we're, we're, we're still um, marginalized because of the repertoire. And uh, it's, it's, that hasn't changed, that, that we still are a bit of marginalized in the classical world. Do you think that's something actually to aspire to? I mean, it's essentially a, a, a type of ensemble that itself hasn't changed for hundreds of years. Is it something that we should be aspiring to or... You know, is the saxophone making its own mark in its own domain? Yeah, and I didn't. Yeah, I did not mean that we should are, are we should be aspiring to being a regular person in the orchestra. I, I think we are making our own mark, and we are creating a path that is a new thing, um, the, especially the saxophone quartet, but even soloists, and that is. Um, that's what's really exciting now. I think that we are seeing a, a new path, a new breed of, of of entrepreneurs on saxophone going out there, and and um, that has changed. And is it as common as a violinist making a path? No, but it's exciting, and and people are excited by it because the the saxophone can do so many different things and different styles and and so many of the players out there are versatile in many different styles i mean you yourself your music encompasses so many different styles and that's and and demands that of the player and that's wonderful now you mentioned your book is coming out how long do we have to wait with bated breath until it's available <laughs> well i i turned it into them uh in march and and i was hoping that i get some feedback from them this summer but they're working on another project that i can't mention for a, a different um person but he promised me that in August they would that he put me on the front burner and that we would have it in hand for the North American Saxophone Alliance National Conference in March, if not before. Great. Well, that'll be a, a perfect place for it to launch, of course. Yes. Now, yes, where yes. else can we find more information about your activities? Do you have a favorite social platform or website that you like to keep everyone updated? Oh, I'm a dinosaur in that regard. <laughs> I, I'm just... I, I, there's just only so many hours in the day, and I'm terrible about keeping keeping up with with that kind of thing. So uh, I generally will post things on Facebook um, that are coming up. But I my my website is 
basically my IllinoisSaxophoneStudio.com that's at, at Illinois and my own personal website, which I'm going to be starting now because of this book and having videos on there and all kinds of stuff. That is yet to come, but hopefully soon. So you're going to have support material for the book on your website? Yes. Great. Fantastic. Yeah. Now, finally, you've made an enormous and sustained contribution to the saxophone over many decades. What is something that you would love to do going into the future? Well, that still remains to be seen. I've been thinking a lot about that. Um, And when I have a a little bit more time to just kind of let that creativity flow. It's definitely be something creative. I thought it would be fun when I've been doing some improvising and I get down, I think, man, I wish I could have recorded that and written that down. It would be fun to write some of my own music. That would be fun. Uh, Something that I don't know if it'll happen, but that would be, that would be fun. Like what you do. That would be, that would be fun. Um, So that's something that's in the back of my mind. Deborah, thank you so much for our conversation this evening. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. And I look very much forward to seeing you next time, uh, perhaps in a bar. Yes. But certainly (laughs) on the International Saxophone (laughs) Committee at some point. In Japan, perhaps. Great. Thanks, Deborah. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Just before you go, a quick reminder to let you know that show notes, any links, and a full text transcript are also available. It would mean a lot to me if you could leave a review for the show by visiting barrysax.com forward slash iTunes. You can subscribe for a new episode each week. And thanks again for joining me and my guests on Barry Zach's show.